Welcome to Carefully Taught, teaching musical theater with Maddie and Kikau. A podcast to discuss musical theater pedagogy and create a community of sharing amongst musical theater educators. Feel free to email us at carefullytaughtpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Carefully Taught Podcast. On today's episode, wait a second, Maddie, what are we doing on today's episode? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked, Kikau. So I changed up our usual format and I went on an investigative NPR style quest to find the answer to a challenging musical theater educator question. I love it. Like we are educators and you are so nerdy that you were like, <laughs> I'm going to go even uh-huh. deeper. And take this to the next level. Perhaps we should call this carefully taught nerdy musical theater teachers. (laughs) So with these, you know, usually when we when I hear one of these NPR style things, there's some sort of problem that we're trying to solve. What is the problem in this case? Yeah. So the problem is whether or not I should direct Legally Blonde. I love it. And so uh, do you think by the end of these interviews and by the end of this conversation, you'll have an answer? Well, you'll have to wait and see. For our upcoming main stage season, my university's selection committee chose four wonderfully assorted and challenging productions that included a diverse collection of creators and provided our students very different opportunities to flex their creative muscles. As the musical theater program coordinator, I typically direct at least one production a year as part of my course assignment load, sometimes more. And based on my spot in the rotation, my assignment next season is set to be Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde has never been a show I had very strong feelings about one way or the other. Like all of us, this is not uncommon for directing jobs, and when it happens, I usually am able to dig into the themes of the show or or characters in the show and and find something or someone that I connect to uh, or that I'm inspired by. This isn't hard. It's not uncommon. It's absolutely something that I can do. But as I found myself thinking about the show more and more, I kept coming back to the question of whether or not it was even appropriate for me to be taking on a leadership position with this production in the first place. Its female protagonist is trying to make their way in a male-dominated field. She's constantly judged for her appearance, and ultimately the story is a feminist story about empowerment in the face of adversity. Like virtually every musical, looking at it through today's lens exposes problematic issues of generalized, stereotypical representation. It has a male savior coming in to rescue the damsel in distress. And of course, it has a very challenging Me Too scene with the professor. But as a committed anti-racist and an inclusive director who has had training with theatrical intimacy educators, I felt equipped to deal with these things. Uh, And I was ready to take the difficulties head on. My training and experience had prepared me to tackle those things. But the question remained, should I? Should I even be directing this show in the first place? Now, at this time, I've got to interject and acknowledge my extreme privilege. Because of my race, my geography, my gender identity, all of which I was born with, 
I walk in shoes that are far more comfortable than others. I debated even working on this episode because of how acutely aware I am that as I learn more and I grow, I'm going to look back at this episode and roll my eyes at myself. The industry is built on the backbone of white supremacy and male domination, which has left me no shortage of stories that are clearly appropriate for me to tell. And that's exactly why I'm wrestling with this and asking myself this question. I think we all recognize that there is a line between content that is and isn't appropriate for us to work on, for a certain director or a certain actor because of their identity. But where exactly is that line? Especially in academia, where oftentimes resources are slim and faculty and staff is short. At my university, for example, all three of the other directors slated to direct next season identify as women. And they'd be absolutely suited to tell Elle Woods' story in Legally Blonde. But they also bring unique perspectives and points of view that are essential to the projects that they've been assigned. This leaves me as the obvious choice to do the fourth and final production of the year. If it was Dreamgirls or Fun Home, if there were no other female-identifying directors this season, I would demand to be released from this project. But Legally Blonde in this season feels different. It feels somewhere right near the middle, right near the line that I'm trying to respectfully understand and embrace. So I needed to do some research. I needed to talk to my network of colleagues and friends in order to make a decision that was best for my students and best for our audiences and that I was comfortable with. I had to do this for myself and ultimately I decided to include it in our podcast because if I'm struggling with it, I imagine someone else is too. And if I can't open up and be authentically vulnerable with our podcast audience, then what is the point of doing the podcast in the first place? Besides Kikau, one of my most trusted resources is my good friend Tim Espinosa. Tim is an associate professor and the coordinator of the musical theater program at Fullerton College in Southern California. He's also the co-host of the podcast Breaking the Fourth Wall, and he was the former lead diversity officer for the Musical Theater Educators Alliance. Tim is a real activist for change, positive change, in the musical theater landscape, and he's a warrior for social justice within the theater. I knew he'd have a strong point of view and could give me some insight on his position, on where that line is, and whether or not I should be directing Legally Blonde next spring. This is Tim. It's a a complex answer. Uh, It's a complex question that begs a complex answer. I think as we move forward as, as directors, as as producers and artistic directors when it comes to selecting season and selecting creative teams to work on specific shows. It's not so much, I think, this is just a personal assessment. It's not so much about whether you, Maddie Miller, should be the one directing a show that is dealing with a particular subject matter that maybe you don't have a direct connection to, say, say Waitress or The Color Purple. The larger question is, Who are you surrounding yourself with? And who are the gatekeepers that are disseminating the cultural context that's addressed in the show? So, but I would contest that it's not appropriate for me to direct Color Purple under Mm -hmm. any circumstances. Mm -hmm. Like, I would not be comfortable with that. That's not my story to tell, no matter how much research I do, no matter how many incredible people I surround myself with, as as the face of the leadership, because the the director is the leader, 
I I don't feel like I, I would never be comfortable with that. But so let me ask you. Let me ask you this, and I'm not disagreeing in any way, shape, or form. I think I think again, it's a complex question that begs a complex answer, and I don't think there is any one agreement on it. Do we negate? Michael Arden's work on the revival of Once on this Island, as celebrated as the work was, I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a wonderful celebration of the culture. And if you look at who he surrounded himself with, he had the support system. I would not be comfortable directing Once on this Island. Mm -hmm. I would, if I was offered Once on this Island, I would see that as an opportunity for me to step aside and say to the producers, I believe that you need a person who identifies as BIPOC in the leadership of this of this production. That's, that's for me, a line in the sand, no pun intended, since we're talking about Once on this Island. So yeah. um, that, that said, I one of the things that I'm struggling with in this current um, climate and, and, and as divisive as so many conversations that are happening, not mm-hmm. just in, in theater, but like around the world, around the, our culture, is trying not to judge others who did accept that. Like, yeah. I know that my line is before Once on this Island. I know that. Mm-hmm. But like a show like Legally Blonde, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to do or not, which is sort of the, the quest that I'm going on at the moment. So- in your specific case, I, I don't I don't see Legally Blonde being a, a concern. You have you have a female identifying choreographer. I know you. You're going to support. You're going to you're going to build a creative team, and you're going to build the research and development around the show. That's going to that's gonna, the students are going to rally behind. And I think that's going to be fine. Uh, I did I did want to talk for a second about you know what happens when there is someone that wants to direct a show like Once on this Island, like Allegiance, or like something that is very culturally specific that isn't associated with their their essence and their identity. Um, and I asked this question to a lot of people, and we did it in podcasts, and it seems that the common denominator that kept coming up was the fact that we shouldn't be canceling a director for wanting to direct that production, what we should be holding accountable is in the rehearsal room, who is controlling the narrative, the cultural narrative, and how is that information being disseminated and by whom? That is the most important thing. If I, I'm just going to speak hypothetically, if I were to take on a production like, um, let's say once on the sound to say, uh, and, um, I would ensure that either my choreographer, my MD, my intimacy director, or whoever the rest of the creative team is, is part of that majority, is part of that identity, so that they are in direct conversation in the room with students. They are empowered in the rehearsal room to utilize their voice and their cultural experience to help bring balance to the show. If it were a room of creative whites that we're talking about you know, what it's like to be African-American, that just obviously is sending red flags completely. So, and I, and I, I really believe this. I believe that we, it's a slippery slope when we start to say only you are allocated to these kinds of shows and you are only allocated to these kinds of shows. Right now, we're all very sensitive about this because the pendulum has swung so far, you know, to one side of the equation. There's going to come a time and it's going to happen. There are going to be people who are going to want to direct narratives that are not, that they don't identify with. We have to make sure that those people understand if they do decide to do that, how to go about creating a 
building a creative team and building research and development dramaturgical work that supports the student's identity and the, and the story's culture. The tagline for Breaking the Fourth Wall, the podcast that Tim co-hosts, is that they engage in stimulating conversations about bringing positive change to musical theater. And that always makes me smile because it feels like every conversation that I have with Tim meets that criteria. Tim brought up some good points, and he knows me well. As I was considering whether or not I was going to direct this production, I had already reached out to the chair of the political science department at my university about working with the cast as like a pseudo-dramaturg and a a personal resource for the cast. She happens to be a female-identifying lawyer who specializes in constitutional law, advises the pre-law students, and serves as the president of the Pacific Coast Association of Pre-Law Advisors. She also happens to be one of my best friends on campus. Tim's point of view seemed focused on making sure there was appropriate representation on the team of the production and less about the actual director. I totally respect his point of view, but I believe there are shows that certain people just should not direct. As I reflected on our conversation, it struck me that the person that I reached out to first was a man, and the historically excluded community that Legally Blonde represents is women. So I decided to reach out to my friend Lauren Houghton-Gillis, an assistant professor at Indiana University and an established female-identifying director-choreographer, to see what she thought. So I guess the first question is, in your opinion, are there shows that, because of how people identify, certain, certain people should not direct? Uh, yes, I will say... A th- I do feel, I feel like there are, there's like different categories though. Um, so I'll start with how I feel. Do you, do you want to know how I feel about Legally Bond? Sure. Tell, talk, let's talk about it. So originally uh, directed and choreographed by Jerry Mitchell, whom I love. Um, I don't know him at all, but I just love um, that his shows are always like a celebration of life. It feels just very joyful when you walk into uh, a theater where his show is playing and he's a white man. Um, and I think, you know, that was a long time ago when it was on Broadway. I don't think it's inappropriate for you to, to, to direct the show. I do think that it would behoove you and others that, you know, this is a perfect show to do at college. So it should be done. Um, but I do think that having a female assistant director, having a female choreographer, um, is would be paramount. Would be really, really important and necessary. Um, for me, uh, I'll give an example. I worked at a theater a few years ago, and there was talk of me coming back in in future seasons. And what's happening? The season they chose for the, for the next few years includes titles like The Color Purple and In the Heights. I don't ever want to do those shows, no, those shows, nor should I. And it's not just because I am not an African American woman or a Latinx woman. It's just dance-wise, you know, as a, as a choreographer, um, movement-wise, I don't have the correct um, language. I don't, I don't excel in Afro-Cuban. I don't, um, I don't feel like I have the stuff for the color purple. And, and, and it's beyond just uh, the culture, which is the most important thing is I am not Latinx and I am not African-American. And therefore those, I feel like those shows, I would not feel comfortable 
directing or choreographing. So, like, what about a show, uh, and I'm just kind of pulling stuff out of the air now, what about a show like Lacage? Like, that's a, that's a story that isn't necessarily yours, based on what I know of you. Um, so, like, would you feel comfortable directing a show like Lacage, or would that be beyond what you would be interested in doing? Um, I've done Lacage two times as a performer in regional theater. I love the show. Um, yeah, back when I did it, uh, 10 years ago even, I'd say, yes, I'm dying to do Lacage just because it's everything. It's comedy. It's everything that I love. Comedy, um, lots of dance. As a director choreographer, it would just be such right up my alley. Um, but no, not in 2021. I would, I wouldn't be like, uh, that's, a, it's, it's a little more of a gray area because yeah. it's really where I feel like I live as a director choreographer. But if there's someone that, uh, is queer, I would definitely, um, put their name ahead of mine. So what makes, what makes you directing Lacage different than me directing Legally Blonde? I mean, I <laughs> I don't have all the answers. I don't know. Like, um, when it becomes me, I guess when I, when you talk about doing Legally Blonde, I'm like, yeah. Like, if you have a female choreographer, like, yeah, because I think it's really important for the movement to be feminine. There's a lot of like strong female power production numbers. Um, this is hard. <laughs> right, I know. It's a, it's a great. It's a great uh, conversation, and it's an important one because one of the things that you and I do have in common is just how hard we're working to be to be inclusive, to support representation, to um, you know, to be forward-thinking and progressive with this conversation. And so, in order for us to do what's right, <laughs> we've got to figure out what is what is right. I've expressed a little about my hesitancy about directing Legally Blonde next season, but I haven't really talked about why I would want to do it. I mean, if the concerns were all that existed, it would be easy enough to step aside and make room for another director to lead the project, right? But as I mentioned before, I'm conflicted. First of all, it's because I'm an educator, and some of the most important educating that I do is in the context of the rehearsal process. Unlike some, I don't treat most school productions as my own creative outlet. Instead, I really see productions at school as a laboratory for students to apply what they are learning in the classroom in a real-life setting. I don't have the same responsibilities when directing a university production that I do when I freelance direct in my own time, because my students need me to not only direct, but also teach while directing. Therefore, I see it as part of my responsibility as an educator to direct university productions from time to time. Also, concerns aside, Legally Blonde really plays to a lot of my strengths as a director. It's a community-engaging, energetic, contemporary musical that is a fast-paced, silly romp that doesn't take itself too seriously. I, I mean, that's kind of my wheelhouse. I think that Coming out of a year-and-a-half-long pandemic, I would be able to create the atmosphere that would feed this production and really be a fulfilling experience for the company of actors and technicians as well as our university audience. My concerns just center on if the company would need a female-identifying leader who could really speak to the experience that Elle goes through, and if it 
would be respectful to the performers as well as the show itself for a male-identifying director to take the lead. I decided to reach out to Shavana Calder. Shavana is an equity actress who just finished the off-Broadway run of Tectonic Theater's Seven Deadly Sins, which was directed by Moises Kaufman. But she's also an equity, diversity, and inclusion consultant and the founder of Arts and Color, an anti-racist organization. Shavana is an extraordinary human who I was recently reacquainted with through some trainings that I took from her. Good morning, friend. How are you? I'm great. The first question that I have for you is simply, do you think that people, there, there are shows that people shouldn't direct, even mm-hmm. at the university level, because of how they identify? Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, that's so tricky for me. Um, I think it's something that we are all figuring out. I think certainly within commercial theater, it's easier to just say, hey, I'm going to hire this person and here's the budget and all of that. Within education and also just acknowledging that that's broad and can mean very different things and very different access to money. um, I think we're seeing now the creativity to really meet the needs of the students and the shows that people want to have done. I think in general, as much as you can have someone in a, in a decision-making position in the space that has identities that align with the core story, that that is really helpful. I'm thinking of a project that I'm currently on and in some ways how the dynamic changed once the playwright was in the room. So on one hand, like the root of this is, of course, making the effort to constantly diversify certainly within race, but other marginalized and historically excluded communities, the, like just the base of the faculty. And the second is, yeah, I think that if you are doing the work to be introspective and say, you know, there are parts of this that I'm not so sure, and here's why, that maybe in some ways that question asking means that, like maybe it's a co-director situation, you know, where, where it's not as hierarchical as what we've been used to in terms of director, assistant director, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe it's a co-direction um, situation or something that allows so that the core identities of the piece are reflected in decision-making. Because I think at the end of the day, that's part of what the director is. Decision-making, of course, collaborating in terms of storytelling and all of that. But it's the power part to me that stands out the most. So it sounds like what you're saying is having the voices in the room and creating a, a power structure that the different voices feel able to speak and that are able to make uh, decisions as opposed to this, I mean, really silly and old-fashioned, the director is at the top of the pyramid kind of thing. It seems important to me Mm -hmm. is not just, and as I'm saying this, it feels performative, but I think performative in the right way. Um, It feels like it's not only that the that there are female identifying voices that have power but making sure that it's clear to the people in the show the the female identifying actors in the show that th- those voices have power because exactly if they have if they have power when we close the door and our students don't see that then 
they they may feel as though a cis white man is telling them how to act like a woman, which mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I that to me is the key, and for me, and you know, in some ways, I'm grateful that I'm having this experience simultaneously as we are discussing it because even though this person is um, is not the director, they're they're the playwright, and it's, it's their words. Right. And so we know that there's a certain level of power in that. And that at the end of the day, it's a collaboration between those people, which is very rare when it's because this is a newer work and it's not something. Um, so it's something that's happening in real time in terms of its creation and being able to see as a performer in that piece, the collaboration and the fact that both of them were making decisions together in front of me is really the thing one of the things that that also made me feel more comfortable instead of what some places and institutions like to do, of course, which is to hire the face and have the face there, but the face isn't talking or the face is a figurehead or whatever it is. Um, so I do think making that clear is important. And maybe even, I, I wonder if in some ways the titles adjust a little bit outside of what we normally know. Like if this person is a part of the directing process and not solely choreography, does there need to be a discussion at the start of rehearsals to make that clear? Um, does there need to be some sort of adjustment to the way that we even um, are speaking about or to these roles? Like, is it director, choreographer? What What is it really? So that it's very clear that um, that this is a collaborative um, sort of, yeah, a collaborative process instead of the traditional hierarchical structure. I used the word performative a moment ago, and and it's a word that I re- I get stuck on a lot because I hear colleagues be afraid to make decisions because of the fear that it will appear as performative. It feels to me like, from my perspective, strong, bold. performative acts are part of making change are part of forward progress but the 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 issue with the word performative becomes when it's only the performative act and it's not backed up on with with the work with the with the uh, the daily decision making Mm -hmm. that's being driven by equity and inclusion but i'm wondering if you could speak to that and and your thoughts on Oh, no. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it it is something that I, I have seen a lot and I just encourage people, especially for those who are genuinely doing the work day to day and are open to feedback, which is something that just popped in my mind as we were um, talking. But I think that if you have structures in which people can give feedback and you also have structures to promote transparency, um, those are two really great steps and that along the journey, you know, there are going to be, there are going to be people that will deem what you are doing, what I sometimes am doing. People are going to disagree, whether it's necessarily about being performative or something else. And for me, and something that I don't want to misquote him, but I had a a conference recently where Brandon Michael Nace, who's the founder of Broadway for Racial Justice, was on and was talking about uh, one of the programs they have allied with BFRJ, 
where these organizations or individuals are doing the work. And one of the things that he says is like, look, there are going to be some people who think that the things that you are doing are performative, but all you can do is keep doing the work. Maddie, why did you decide to do this? So I struggled a little bit with whether or not using myself as as the example was a, a smart idea, was a good idea, was a, because what I don't like is that it centers me in the conversation, and and I I definitely don't need any more centering. Um, but the thing that I kept coming back to was the fact that I've had many friends and colleagues express to me that they don't know how to appropriately respond to this call for representation, equity, and inclusion in leadership positions within the theater. So I figured, well, you know, at the risk of sounding like an egomaniac and making a whole podcast about myself, I'll volunteer as tribute. I'll, you know, try to navigate what the answer is. I love it. This is um, definitely something that other um, educators, other directors might be struggling with. And I love that we're just peeling that layer back, right? Showing what we can, showing our own um, situations. I, just, a question that comes up in my mind is, is this something that um, you could just actually walk away from? Like, is it possible just to understand, is it possible for you to say to your administration, hey, you know what, not going to direct this time? Um. I'm not somebody that's afraid to to make the difficult but right decisions. Um, it would be a it would be a very tough spot uh, for my university if I said I'm not I'm I'm not comfortable directing this particular piece. I think that 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 as people are listening to this, there is that other conversation about what the pressures that we get from administration or from our departments and and also the the way in which things work right or or maybe the way in which things have always worked and it's now time for a shift or time for a change um and you know as you're speaking about this it's like what can we do how can we get more um leaders and leadership and directing options and and just other people to be able to do these things. So so I love that you're exploring this and I'm I do also think that there's that extra step to get people into positions where they could potentially have this leadership position and and we wouldn't even need to have these conversations because it would sort of just make sense. We need to find ways for students to be able to look at their their professors and see themselves uh, so that they can see themselves in theater, so that they can see themselves in education, so that they can connect with their professors in ways that are deeper and more personal than just the subject that's being taught. I want you, by the end of this, to make a decision um, with, with, of course, all the information that you have, but I want you to make it with... Um, with love, right? Like rather than thinking of this in that fear model or that scarcity model, like, well, I'm doing it because I have to, um, is it different? That's it. I know I'm, you know, maybe confusing the point, but it's, I want you to, to agree to direct this because you firmly believe that you are the right person to be doing this. And, 
that, you know, you don't have that little thought in the back of your mind about what this means financially or, you know, what the, the greater meaning of, of this might mean for the university. Um, so good luck, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, 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 no pressure, no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> I will I, I will make you a promise. Whatever decision I make, I will make it because I believe that it's the right thing to do. That's great. I, I um, have been listening to Oprah's – she has a Super Soul podcast and she's doing this conversation about what she knows for sure. This is excerpts from her book and, and one thing that she says is that um, if it is not a resounding yes, then it's a no. You know, if you're feeling any hesitation, like any percentage of a hesitation, then it might not be the right thing. And and of course, she is coming in this case from a place of privilege, right? She's owns the world, has a bazillion dollars. <laughs> but it's but it's it inspired me because she even makes this decision when it comes to going to meetings or not going to meetings or donating that bazillion dollars that I mentioned earlier. So my advice to you would be if you are feeling even one inkling of a no, like don't do it. But if this is something that you are, you know, unequivocally ready to take on and, and am ready to do it, then I say it's an absolute yes. That's good advice. Yeah. I'll, uh, thank you for that. You're a good friend. So So tell me where you are. What's the, what's the status? Well, um, I, I think those were three really wonderful conversations from three people who I, I really respect. And um, I've got some ideas, but I'm just not ready to make a decision. There's, there's too much else to consider. Uh, so there will be a part two, and uh, we'll see. I, I, will, I, will make, I will make the decision that is right for me and most importantly for my students. So that's whatever decision it is, as difficult as it may be, that that's what will drive it. Oh, this is so exciting. I mean, I know we're doing this podcast together, but I also feel like I'm at the edge of my seat, right? Like <laughs> what what will be decided? I am fully invested in this now, and so I can't wait to hear where we end up. Awesome. Um, cool. So, uh, we're, we're at the end of the podcast and as, as we do with every episode, uh, we're going to make a recommended resource to our listeners, uh, something that would, um, a, a tool that they could use in their teaching to enhance their, 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 their life as an educator. And because I, uh, I, I sort of was front and center for most of this episode, I'd love to hear if you have a recommended resource for our listeners. I do. And it's one word. And that word is schmigadoon. So now listen, I'm sure when this is actually published, we're going to be a few weeks into, you know, um, the release of this show. But while we're recording it, I believe, you know, episode two or three um, has just been released on Apple Plus. If you have that, that is something you should do. Um, I am strongly recommending this show. Um, I, first of all, find it so fun. So that's number one. Um, but also two, as a musical theater educator, um, it can be pretty educational right now. You know, they, they make some subtle references and some not so subtle references to some of our favorite golden age musicals like Oklahoma, uh, seven brides for seven brothers. Um, I'm pretty sure we're turning the corner into some music man references very soon. And, um, it's just so super fun. 
Uh, I also love that in this world, oh, oh, of course, Brigadoon. I don't think I mentioned Brigadoon, but in this world um, that I I love that it is juxtaposed by the modern and uh, couple of uh, Cicely Strong and Keegan-Michael Key. Um, And it's just sort of fun watching them um, interact in this musical landscape. Um, And of course, it stars some like amazing Broadway stars and Broadway talent like Kristen Chenoweth, Alan Cumming, Ariana DeBose, Anne Harada. Um, I haven't even gotten to Jane Krakowski yet, but I'm sure she is going to be absolutely stunning. She always is. I, so I only watched the first episode last night, and I, I watched it with my partner, with my, with my wife, Jamie, who is um, not a musical theater person. She's a theater person, she's, but she's like classically trained Shakespeare actor person, uh, way smarter than I am. And we're sitting on the couch and she, she was giggling. She had the, the, uh, she was under a blanket and she kept covering her face. She says to me at the end, she goes, I'm going to have the craziest dreams tonight. I feel, I feel like I just hallucinated. What is going on? It's a totally different experience than the one that I had. And I'm seeing the subtle, or yeah, like you said, subtle or not so subtle carousel nods and, um, Oklahoma and music man nods. I mean, it's, it's so ridiculous, um, but I don't think it, you need to be a musical theater person to enjoy it. So, like, for our listeners who are musical theater educators, you can actually get your kids or your partner to watch it with you, and, and they'll enjoy it, too. I would, um, you know, as an option or maybe as an opportunity, I would give uh, extra credit. Now, you're not – you haven't done episode two yet, but I would give extra credit for – uh, a student to write a paper about the connections that they can make between this show and between some of those classic Broadway shows. That's just a fun little thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I- I'm excited for this to unfold. I'm excited to see what happens next. Um, but the other major thing I was going to say, sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second, is it feels like we've been living in this ironic space for so long. It's really nice to sit in something that is absolutely sentimental mm-hmm. and still has a little twist to it. There's something mm-hmm. there's nothing else like it on TV right now. Nothing. Would you agree? Yeah, no, I would totally agree. And you know, while the while the recommended resource was Schmigadoon, I we might even expand that to be Apple TV Plus because uh, Central Park is also a musical television series. It's an animated musical television series and it's not musical theater related, but I am in love with Ted Lasso. Like I'm that's that's the leader I aspire to be. <laughs> I mean, he is just incredible, right? I mean, it, it's you can't deny that lovable that like winning attitude. Yeah. I mean, he is incredible. So Schmigadoon is the official recommended resource, but Apple TV Plus is is maybe the expanded one because then you can also see Ted Lasso in Central Park among other things as well. Um So all right, so this is a good episode. I think we nailed it. I love it. I think it's great, and I can't wait to hear what's next. Yeah, stay tuned. Schmigadoon! (laughs) Exclamation point. (laughs) (laughs) Music for Carefully Taught was provided by Joshua Haig. For more information, visit joshuahaigmusic.com. 